You are walking through the deep, dark woods. You have been treading on the forest floor for days, weeks, maybe months. You don't really know anymore. This space devours time. You lay your weary form to rest beneath an ancient tree, and, lost in momentary reverie, you hear a sound, or not quite a sound, something that seems to have the properties of little sparkling lights. You get up and follow the sound. Now your step seems guided and reinvigorated with purpose. Wondrously, you reach a clearing. There you are greeted by the sight of a tower crowned by the full moon. Atop the tower, splitting the lunar light, a cloaked silhouette raises a wand to the sky and the moon shines golden. Welcome, disciple. Welcome to the realm of the wizard in the ivory tower. Hello friends, for those of you who don't know me yet, my name is Michael Vrezetoulis and I'm a bit of a jack of all trades. I guess I'm an academic scholar, you know, technically if you want uh, like something that's close to an official title or an official description of what I do that is recognized in an official way. I am currently a PhD candidate in the philosophy department of the University of Ioannina. And my field is metaphysical epistemology, which I know sounds weird. Um, so instead of trying to explain exactly what that is and going into a discussion of fields of philosophy in this introductory episode, which I don't think would be very appropriate, uh, I'm just going to very briefly tell you about what I do in my PhD. Uh, essentially, I do a comparative or rather syncretic reading of certain philosophical narratives. And then I use like the common structure that comes out of that. And I use that to do readings of mythological and religious texts and try to detect some maybe common patterns um, relating to how the human mind perceives the nature of existence. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, now that we have that out of the way, um, I'm also, I guess, an artist. Uh, and I'm not using that as a title. I've never done uh, any art in terms of an official capacity as in a big gallery or anything like that with a few exceptions not really things maybe that get close to it um but i'm i'm calling myself an artist in in terms of what i do and in in terms of something that i devote a lot of my time and something i invest of uh, invest a lot of my soul into and there's a lot that I do in that field as well or you know going with the dragonfold trades uh, theme. So, you know, I do some painting, I do some photography, uh, I also compose music, and, um, you know, I create some costumes sometimes, some masks, I enjoy a lot of that. But more than anything, I think my main uh, talent and also my the the kind of art that is most important to me is literature and uh not surprisingly at all i write uh, dark fantasy short stories um and i hope that at some point i'm going to talk to you much more about this because it actually is a big part of my life at least internally um although i try to do as much as i can with that even outside my own little mental space. And, you know, finishing a triptych of titles, I guess I'm also an occultist, as cheesy as that might sound. 
And that's okay, you know, it's okay that it sounds cheesy, and I guess it is cheesy in many ways, but cheesy is okay, I think. Um, and, you know, I could, I could go into uh, discussing the intricacies of psychodrama and the epistemology of metaphor and all those sort of things, but I think in the end I would feel like I'm making apologies for my interests, and I don't really want to do that. At least not in in a way that it would sound apologetic. Uh, so I'm going to, for now, just allow my interests to talk for themselves uh, as much as that is possible. So anyway, uh, these these three uh, aspects of my of my activity, uh, you know, the the academic part, which is mostly philosophy, but not also not not, not only. Sorry. Uh, you know, my, my major was in classics. Um, I, I did a lot of studies in literature and also linguistics. And I'm also very interested in psychology and a lot of things. Um, so I guess comparative humanities in general. Uh, so there's that aspect. Then there's the artistic aspect. And then there's also the occult discussions aspect, I suppose. And, you know, all of these things uh, are very much related and interconnected in what I do. And they have been the axis of a YouTube channel I have been uh, running for a few years now. Um, and um, there, I was always trying to kind of put a, put a label on that axis on, you know, the combination of that triptych and the combination of all my interests altogether. So, and like an umbrella term or a name that I came up for, for the entirety of my work and for my YouTube channel, maybe more specifically, or the, although I don't use that name like or, or as a channel name or anything, the term I came up with to describe all of my work or to, you know, to cover all of my work as a mental category is the name or the phrase the wizard in the ivory tower and I'm in this first episode of this podcast I'm going to introduce you to that term because in many ways the entire podcast will in some ways be about that term or at least it will fit into it in some ways just as everything I did on my YouTube channel, because in the end, the concept of the wizard in the ivory tower is the axis of all my interests and also the, the bag that can collectively hold all of them together and let them mix, let's say. So, you know, how did I come up with this term, with this phrase? Um... In my younger days, in the days of my youth, you know, in those nostalgic days of yore, um, I was very much into transhumanism. I'm still interested like, in the evolution of technology and trans transhumanism, although I'm much less of a techno-optimist these days. Uh, it's not that I've become a techno-pessimist, I just came to the realization that uh, with great potential comes great danger, and, you know, this... This risky balance is maybe even at the center of the meaning of life in some ways. Anyway, we'll get into that in another episode, probably. So I was a lot into transhumanism. And there was this, this term uh, I was hearing a lot in, uh, in some transhumanist discussions, especially the more um, libertarian transhumanist types, which was cocooning. And... It was this term that described uh, essentially an individual that through advanced technology is capable of essentially uh, living a life where they are uh, either sheltered or encased into their own little world and they're very autonomous in that way but also have a lot of potential and, and you know, live, live a life... Uh, where they're very much in control of their own personal self-defined environment. And as I went more and more into transhumanist discussions and stuff like that, uh, there was 
there was a concept that came up of two different ways uh, in which technological evolution uh, could, um, you know, evolve humanity. And one of them was this cocooning concept. The other concept was the, I'd call the network concept. This idea where through technology, we are more and more connected and essentially we become a global mind in the end, like a global neural network. Uh, in the end, I think I came to the conclusion that both cocooning and a type of network can be simultaneously possible, but uh, that's not really what I want to discuss at this point. I was fascinated by this, by the cocooning concept. And um, in many ways, uh, I was always trying to uh, live my life, especially or at least certain aspects of it, being cocooned in my own self-defined environment, or at least I would fantasize about being able to do that as much as I can. And because I'm a very mythologically minded person, let's say, um, of course, I I, I put, brought that into uh, the archetypal, let's say, and the mythical and the, the fairy tale aesthetic of it all, and the, the fantasy aesthetic even. Um, so I started, I started thinking of the concept of the like the, the fairy tale concept of the wizard in the tower, you know, and there's this concept of the lonely wizard uh, living in a high tower in like um a high, like a high tower of wonders out there in the wilderness, uh, you know, in a clearing in the deep dark woods, and he's kind of distant from society. Not not completely separate, but definitely distant. Sometimes even maybe completely separate. Definitely very distant, though. And there's even a duality to this distance. Like, you know, from uh, from one point of view, uh, he kind of needs to be um, away from society because he can't handle society. Uh, and the other one is that because, you know, he's a wizard, you know, or you can you can use the witch in the hut if you want a more feminine archetype. But I'm going to go with the wizard in the tower because he's a wizard. Because he he taps into magical powers and is capable of altering reality in some ways. This huge potential is also a potential danger. So it's it's also good for society for the wizard to keep his distances in some ways. And there's a very interesting dual dynamic about this. You know about the the relationship between the liminal individual and and the social setting. But I guess I'm we're going to go into that later on. Uh, and there's also the, you know, a, uh, an idea that, you know, this distance is also desired by the wizard. He's not exactly uh, a sad hermit exile, you know. Uh, away from society, he he's maybe not bothered by the humans that much, but also he has this this freedom of self-definition and of self-defining in the, his own environment and his own little world and, you know, uh, and this entire concept. And, you know, this, this fairy tale image really fascinated me. It really did. Um, you know, this image stuck in my head seemed to be so central to my mind and my heart and to who I feel I am and the kind of life I want to live at least, you know, on, on specific, uh, specific aspects of, of human life. Um, and it was also so close to, uh, to, you know, to my psychology and my own uh, uh, temperamental idiosyncrasy, let's say. And it also came up again and again, even before I, you know, realized that concept in some ways, it came up in my art. Uh, it seemed to guide my uh, research interests, both in philology and especially philosophy later on and all other kind of, kinds of um, uh, humanities studies that I did. And of course, um, it also had a very interesting 
occult connotations. Uh, you know, we're talking about a wizard in a, in a tower of wonders. Of course, it will have occult connotations, but maybe not exactly what you think. Um, and, you know, from all that, I went back to my, let's say, transhumanist roots and reevaluated even those points with renewed knowledge, let's say. So I'm going to take these things um, apart now, just a little bit. Um, so I think it's best if we start with the philosophical aspects. Uh, just to make the poetry uh, a bit more enlightened. Some of my friends are going to get that joke. Um, anyway, yeah, so let's get into it. Now, every aged teenager likes Nietzsche, and so did I in my youth, and I still do, very much so. And, you know, the wizard in the ivory tower has obvious Übermensch connotations. But we're going to talk about Nietzsche another time. Sorry to disappoint. I much more want to talk about Aristotle. Maybe, strangely enough, for some, this time. Um, so there's this concept in Aristotle uh, that I heard in high school that really resonated with me. And it was the concept of the apolis. So the apolis is um, Aristotle's term for somebody who lives uh, outside the city, outside the city-state, essentially outside of uh, human society, you know, human community. And famously, Aristotle said that the apolis, you know, he who lives uh, outside of society is either a beast or a god. Um so you have these two concepts of, you know, living outside of the city means that either you've returned to your bestial nature or you've actually evolved into something more. That's not what Aristotle says exactly. Um, but you can read uh, these explanations into that concept. And I think... Um, a lot of people, not a lot of people, I don't know, but I think people of my psychological temperament would be very much um, inclined to do that reading. And so, you know, inspired by many other things, which we'll probably get into at some point, um, I, I came up with a concept that, I've, I don't know if, if it's been said before, uh, somewhere else, but that's how I named it, uh, the concept of the Theotherion. And Theotherion essentially means God-beast. So it was this idea of mine that, you know, the, the Apolis is essentially a combination of these two things, of beast and God. And, um, you know, it, it got me into thinking a lot. And so... I'm going to say this like a, more in terms of, of poetic language. So don't take this as like a very specific uh, like assessment of the nature of things. I came up with this, this like, let's call it a fable that, you know, the common man, humans, <laughs> are like this, this balance, this... Um, balance between beast and god it's it's not all and when i'm saying balance i don't mean that it's perfectly balanced but it's it's swaying between uh, those things human nature is you know this 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 you know combination this not this combination this balance this constant attempt of balancing out these two uh parts of yourself and uh, then i got you know uh, because i was very interested during that time in the concept of um, the initiation to become a wizard because I was studying um, something about magic in the ancient world for my uh, classics degree. And so I came up with this idea that, uh, you know, the, what, the initiation of the wizard, it entails this um, collapsing of that balance and re-emerging as not a balance between beast and God, but a combination of beast and God. 
And so through all of this train of thought and line of thinking, uh, you know, I there was this, there emerged this, you know, com- this, 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 like archetypal story of the wizard being uh, somebody who has this uh, tenuous, let's say, relationship with society. And then I went back into mythical thinking and fairy tales. And as we, you know, as we discussed before, the wizard lives outside of society. And he is even beastly in some sense because part Parts of him make him not suitable, you know, for society. But he also has the godly element, uh, which is this uh, transcendent post-initiation element and his um, much bigger pool of potential, let's say. And from that point on, I got into, uh, you know, combining these ideas I had about the Theotherion and the Apolis with um, Freudian concepts of uh, the id, ego, and superego, and kind of getting into a narrative of uh, the wizard being the emerged ego and everybody else just being this, this uh, you know, lowly combination or balance between id and superego. And, of course, when you're uh, an edgy edgy young man uh, and uh, you don't feel that you fit in the world, of course, you're also going to go into like thoughts of self-supremacy, even if you know you shouldn't. And even if you, you're you making fun of yourself for having those thoughts, but, you know, emotionally it comes out and you can't help it. And the best thing you can do is recognize it, you know, that's part of the shadow. But, you know, Jung will be in another episode. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So, um, I know I rambled a little bit and I wasn't very coherent uh, in this one, but I'm, I'm not going to try to re-record this segment because it's not really what I want to focus on. Um, but it's, um, it's a nice way to go into the occult aspect of it all. So, uh, I was born in Greece, and although I uh, spent my childhood in Germany, I, you know, I then returned to my uh, home country and, um, uh, you know, went to, I, you know, I did the rest of primary school in Greece and then junior high and high school and, and my studies and all of that. So um, for those of you who don't know, uh, the predominant um, religion in Greece is uh, Christianity and specifically the Eastern Orthodox Church. And for my American viewers who might mostly be familiar with uh, evangelical Christianity um, and partly Catholicism, uh, there are many differences about Orthodox Christianity uh, not that much in direct dogma, but um, again, I'd say in temperament uh, and also in its uh, role within society. And anyway, everything is much more relaxed um, in many ways. And there's also, you know, the Christianity's roots in the mystery cults. And in a lot of Hellenistic and imperial tradition and ritual and uh, much more ontological thinking is much more present um, in Orthodox theology than you would find it in Catholicism and certainly much more so than in uh, Protestant Christianity and especially evangelicals. So um, for me, Christianity was not like... um, I never experienced it as an oppressive force. I was aware of how things might be like in the Bible Belt in the States or um, in like more religious societies uh, in other parts of the world. But um, growing up, it was never like a, a, an oppressive force in my life. So it was much easier for me to, um, you know, get into the theology and the philosophy behind it and everything much easier. Um, but that's not really how I started. Uh, I was very interested in uh, in the left-hand path. 
and um, I explored very various avenues in that whole thing, and of course, you know, occultism and magic was the the bulk of it. Uh, but then you have a lot of traditions in that. Anyway, to make a very long st- story uh, a bit shorter, uh, the let's say I found a mentor in the uh, figure of Michael W. Ford, um, who is one of the figures that have kind of defined what, you know, the occult community understands as uh, Luciferianism today. Not the only figure, but certainly an important one. And I really liked uh, Michael W. Ford because on one hand, you had this um, uh, kind of uh, Übermensch mentality that was close to my concept of, um, you know, the wizard in the ivory tower and all of that. Uh, the, the, there was an emphasis on magic, which I enjoyed because I really liked the concept of ritual and all of that. And there was also a huge emphasis on myth. And of course that just grabbed my attention immediately. You know, I was already, uh, studying a lot of mythology, uh, in, in terms of my, um, you know, uh, classics education at the university and I was all already very much enamored with the mythology and antiquity and ritual and religion and all of this you know all of this world um, so it really really grasped grasped me so in Michael W Ford's work I found this combination of you know the um, uh, the let's say the individualist individual um, who is trying to tap into potential and making a huge, at least psychological journey uh, through the world of mythology and certainly and also the darker parts of that, because I was very much drawn to these darker parts of it all, because I always had this like intuition, this intuitive understanding that there is treasure in the dragon's lair to use like a Petersonian concept to describe that. Um, and the, the main focus point of, let's say, certainly Fordian Luciferianism, but I, I guess Luciferianism in general, uh, was this concept of self-deification, you know. And it all, it, it all starts on a on a much more low-level analysis with the idea of the Luciferian revolution and uh, essentially the idea of Satan being, you know, the, the this mythological figure that represents individuated consciousness that rejects the cosmic order, wants to rip himself apart from it, create his own world, his own kingdom, you know, uh, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Um, uh, though I, I was never interested in that as a political metaphor, uh, because I was never, I never had a boner for revolution, let's say. Uh, but I was interested in it as a concept of, you know, uh, of an ontological revolution. And um, you could say that there's a lot of resentment for the universe in that, in some ways. And there certainly is. But mostly what grasped, grasped me was this idea of separating yourself from the cosmic order to create your own world. And it was this mythological quote-unquote, promise of, like, unlimited creativity. Not that I was expecting to be, like, transformed into a deity and creating my own world, but the participating in the archetype and the mythology of that concept that really grasped me. Uh, And as I was generally uh, studying religion more and more, and both, you know, ancient religions, more modern religions, and everything in between. Of course, I also studied Christianity a lot, not uh, not just because it was tangled up in the Lucifer myth, but um, because you know it it also had it definitely had a pull on me from the beginning. The you know the figure of Christ and all of that, and I couldn't really put my finger on it in many ways. And there was this idea in the left and path community that Christianity is a right hand path spiritual system. And that didn't sit quite right with me. Because in order to have a right-hand path system, 
the right-hand path concept is not about obedience to God. It's about the eradication of individuated consciousness. And Christianity is definitely not about that. Even the worst kind of oppressive Christianity, you know, the uh, super puritanic uh, evangelical megachurch, it's not about erasing your consciousness. It's um, about going to heaven after death, to put it in very simplistic terms, you know, and this evangelical concept, which is definitely not right-hand path. It's not exactly left-hand path, but it's definitely not right-hand path. Buddhism is right-hand path, you know. Uh, Hinduism is in many ways. Gnosticism was right-hand path. Christianity isn't. And then I realized that both uh, Luciferianism and Christianity, especially viewed through this uh, orthodox tradition that I was used to from growing up in Greece, they both were about deification in many ways. You know, apotheosis. And in Luciferianism, you have this concept of the of self-deification through separation from the cosmic order. And in Christianity, you have this transcendentalization of individuated consciousness through harmonization with the logos. And in many ways, the very figure of Christ um, represents this idea that uh, God manifested himself or itself, if you want, as an individuated consciousness, which makes the which makes individuated consciousness central to Christian mythology. And when I say mythology, this doesn't mean myth does not mean lie. Okay, that's something very important that we also have to keep in mind. Myth is meta truth. I think is the best way of putting it. And I think Peterson said it once. Um, and yeah, I'm going to make a lot of references to Peterson. Sorry, guys, um, if you don't like him. I know some of you in my audience are, um, you know, politically in disagreement with Jordan Peterson, but I'm not going to go into the politics at all in this podcast. Uh, so in, in any way, so uh, even uh, you have my audience who are politically differently inclined. I hope you will humor me and just, you know, uh, give me some room to just use uh, Peterson's like more epistemological elements. Anyway, that's how I want to talk about at this point. So I found both in Luciferianism and uh, especially Orthodox Christianity, the this idea of uh, deification and especially transcendentalization of individuated consciousness, you know, theo apotheosis of the ego, the ego not in terms of selfishness, but, you know, the uh, the idea that, you're co that you are an individuated point of consciousness. And um, that became very central to my interests. And I kind of, in some ways, I guess I'm a an orthodox Luciferian, uh, an LHP Christian. I don't know. Um, but, you know, all that said, uh, I think we can now go back into, you know, the transhumanist roots of my thinking and re-examine all of that uh, from this new light. What made transhumanism really attractive to me was not really, you know, this techno-optimist uh, idea that, oh, technology is going to solve all our problems and we're going to perpetually live in paradise. No. Uh, and if you believe that, I'm not going to say it's bullshit, because it is, but, you know, I can understand wanting that to be the case. But it, reality is much more complicated than that. Anyway, anyway it was not the techno-optimism that drew me. It was, I think... Let's put it this way, the dream of realizing the metaphor. You know, this, this idea of, you know, virtual reality and even the virtualization of material reality itself through like augmented reality and uh, nanotechnology that, you know, this could be like a tearing of the veil, you know, like opening forth the gates of potential and bringing back the magic to the world. 
And I'm saying bringing back because I think that this tearing of the veil is like an archetypal desire for some people. And um, it was this idea that, you know, technology could, could materialize um, a world that would be much more interesting for me to live in. You know, I was dreaming, I was yearning for this unleashing of potential, you know, where um, mind would be a much more direct um, factor in the structure of reality. Because again, we're going back to the, the creative aspect that always drew me in everything from the occult stuff and my artwork and everything. This idea that uh, I could be the god of my own world, not for power, but for creativity. And I also yearned for an existence filled with wonder. You know, an existence filled with wonder that is very different to the mundane you know, due to material everyday reality. And this goes back to the cocooning, you know, it's it's not just wanting to cocoon, to be the wizard in the ivory tower to, because you can stand society or because you can function in it, because, but of course that's interconnected with all this, but it's this idea that you can you can create your own world. That drew me, always drew me like nothing else. You know, this, this idea that, you know, the unleashing of potential that could happen through technology could, let's say, shrink the distance between the mythic and the empirical, you know, between or the transcendent and the empirical, if you want, you know, to, uh, make the distance between Plato's world of ideas and world of... Um, objects make that distance much smaller and, uh, you know, um, become a creative spirit of the in-between. I don't know. Uh, and, you know, the being creative, I think, is a value by itself, obviously. But it also, this, this whole idea also has some Epicurean hedonistic connotations, you know. It can almost be seen as parallel to this um, idea of perpetual paradise that the techno-optimists have. But slowly I started realizing that for me it was something more. That through realizing uh, a world like that, or living an existence like that as closely as possible, can also lead to, can also have like an initiatory quality to it, lead to some sort of evolution or ascension of consciousness. And all that happens because an existence filled with wonder, with archetypal structures, with myths and stories and constant creativity, is an exploration of being itself because the structures of being are inherent to everything you know and the human mind is just one more link in that chain of universal production and the structures that govern existence are inherent in all of that and that's why for example i firmly believe that you can learn about being through a good book or a video game you know, even if it's just fantasy and nothing else. In some cases more than others, obviously, you know, you're going to understand much less in a power fantasy, going to get much less out of it than uh, in, a, in a game like Dark Souls that beats you over the head <laughs> with the tragedy of being, but uh, you have realizations uh, when you reach this point of overcoming we can go into millions of examples like that, but looking at my transhumanist, uh, the transhumanist roots of my thinking through all of this made me realize what, like, my central axis and central value was. And it was this idea of um, a creative life where I, as an individuated consciousness, could go through a perpetual initiation, uh, you know, through the structures of being and understand more and more. And this, you know, this 
copulation of gaining knowledge and creating new structures and it, there was an, an orgasmic quality to that thought and it was at that point that I had realized what the meaning of life is for me. And obviously this leads us to I think the central aspect of all of this which is what I like to call the psychology of the liminal individual. Now by liminal individual, I mean like uh, a sentient being. Okay, let's make it simpler. A human person, <laughs> you know, an individual who on the one hand has maybe a different way of viewing things and maybe enhanced creativity or a, an enhanced perception of structures, which of course also comes with um, some difficulties in other matters and most often this is social integration and social functionality. And with that of course comes a lot of loneliness, you know, and introversion will be very often a part of all of this and a basic characteristic of the liminal individual and um, of course when you're lonely and introverted and when you have trouble functioning socially you get depressed you know but this depression you know it's a constant struggle uh, me personally I've been through some uh, tough shit you know I'm on two antidepressants uh, which are, have been very good for me and I'm also doing like therapy and stuff and uh, I'm very well but it's been a struggle getting to being very well but when you transcend this breaking you know this having developed this consciousness of tragedy which is very much accompanied um, by this desire for an other world, you know, that I talked about. I think it gives you a unique perspective because realizing, reaching the point where you feel that you're not really of this world, metaphorically at least, or psychologically, uh, you gain the um, unique cursed gift of, you know, the viewpoint of the outsider. And um, that has, you know, its benefits and its drawbacks. But I think that if you can like transcend the tragedy of it, there is something beautiful about it. There's something very beautiful about it, especially when you have recognize it in yourself, then you can also recognize it in the few other people who share this um, uh, this state of being. And when you connect with those people, it's an unbelievably beautiful thing. You know, it's like coming home. Because even though you still yearn for this other world that might not even exist, not maybe doesn't even exist as a... I'm not Christian, okay? I'm not expecting the plain mouth, but I'm. it might exist as an eventual psychogeography, you know, a state of being inside you. But even if everything you have is just the constant uh, nostalgia or yearning for this other place, sharing that desire with other people uh, who feel the same, that by itself can be like coming home. And I've been very blessed to uh, meet other people like that. Because, you know, I've, I've been through my own very, by necessity, initiatory, difficult journey, you know. Uh, you know, my battle with depression, of course, and then also health problems um, that I had to overcome or health problems that are not dangerous but that are making my everyday life difficult and that I have to live with. And also social difficulties, you know, and not really fitting in and taking time for me to reach the point where now I'm like 
I'm 28 and it's only now that I feel that I've finally fallen into the right structure of being and having the right people uh, around me. You know, although lots of those people, I've had them around me uh, or in my life for years, but now you've, ah, I've actually reached the feeling of everything being right uh, in that regard. And, you know, all of this, all of this manifests in my work and uh, my artwork and my in my occult studies and practices and even in my academic work in some ways or in even many ways but maybe not very obvious ones um, maybe one of the of the ways it manifests in let's say my philosophical work is my big distaste of um uh, the of academic philosophy being very much defined by politics, you know. Uh, I saw a very nice um, meme where um, Socrates is about to drink the poison and he says, fuck the polis. <laughs> that was very, a very good one. Um, so yeah, all of this manifests in my work. And all of this is what constitutes the concept of the wizard in the ivory tower. And, you know, the wizard in the ivory tower is partly an, an umbrella term and an axis for all my interests. It's partly um, a manufactured identity for myself. But most of all, I think it's, it's an archetype that shines like a lighthouse uh, in the dark oceans uh, of the tragedy of being. It's um, a focus point on which you can fix your gaze and center yourself in, in the whirlwind of being. And I hope I can share this lighthouse with other people who are like me. Or at least... Uh, have people who might be interested in this concept explore it with me. So in many ways, this is what this podcast will be about. It won't necessarily be uh, like in every episode an examination of this concept, no. Um, it will be an examination of, of my interests. Because all of them are connected to the concept of the wizard in the ivory tower. So we might, uh, in one episode, we might talk about psychology. Uh, in another episode, we might go into analysis of occult philosophy. In other episodes, we might do much more traditional, uh, you know, academic uh, philosophical analyses. Um, uh, and some are going to talk about art. Uh, but all of these will be, by default, not even necessarily by design, but by default connected to the concept of the wizard in the ivory tower. So, once a month, I will be taking you on a tour through the realms of the Ivory Tower. You know, um, you know, discussing things that sway in my mind, like little ghosts dancing between the cobwebs of an abandoned theater. And you can uh, expect much, much more of this uh, bullshit poetical phrases <laughs> coming in. Um, but I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to be pretentious. Using language to construct beautiful images is almost soteriological for me in some aspects. Creating beauty, according to my standards of beauty at least, is soteriological. You know, there is, there is, I think, there is a, a superficial form of Epicureanism and a deeper form of Epicureanism. And the superficial is just um, very stupid materialistic hedonism that comes from a form of uh, nihilism. You know, there is no meaning in anything, so we might as well uh, fill our lives with debauchery. 
But then there's a much deeper aspect to it, which is let's live in beauty because in beauty there is the transcendent. And this dive into the transcendent through beauty fills your life and lifts your sorrows and your pains. And, and I think there is inherent value in that. I really do. So, um, I hope you'll, uh, you'll humor me and allow me to uh, become unnecessarily poetic sometimes. You might even like it. Who knows? Um, so, yeah, anyway, guys, uh, this is pretty much it. I'm going to leave you on some technical stuff. So, this is going to be the uh, first episode. You're probably listening to it on my YouTube channel. Uh, it might be that for some time, for like uh, the next weeks, this episode will for now only be in YouTube because of time restraints that I have right now. But this podcast will be on various uh, platforms. It will also be on BitChute. But most importantly, it will be on various platforms that are uh, audio only and podcast specific. Um, and so the second episode will be on all those uh, for you know platforms and formats, and this first episode I will upload there too, together with the fir- the second episode. Um, I'm not exactly um, I haven't exactly decided yet what the next episode will be. I guess it's better if it's a surprise anyway, uh, even for me. So. I guess I know this this introductory episode was a bit rambly and. Uh, you know, maybe not very coherent sometimes, but I really hope you enjoyed this little dive into my mind. And um, I'd be very honored if you'll follow me on this journey. The uh, You'll have new episodes of the podcast uh, near the end of every month. Uh, so say, stay tuned for that. And um, since most likely you're listening to this on YouTube, uh, Leave your thoughts below in the comments, you know, interaction with people who are interested in my thoughts is like one of the most beautiful things to me. So feel free to comment whatever you want. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tolerating me, even, maybe. Um, Have an excellent uh, rest of your day, evening, whatever you're having. And... We'll talk again soon. Bye.